Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we come this morning to think about your word, I pray that you would challenge us. I pray that you would speak through those many generations in the past. Speak to us through the scriptures about kings, about our Savior, about those who are being persecuted and who are given this vision in the revelation that you gave to John. Open our hearts and our minds that we might live and be what it is that your scriptures want us to be. Through Jesus our Lord. Amen. The influence of the church in the West has almost exponentially decreased since the two world wars. Church leaders and people in the pews lament the church's loss of the influence in society, in politics, and over the lives of the populace. Some lament how Canada is no longer a Christian country. Some lament that it's the wrong priorities of local community members that are to blame for the church's demise. Parents and their children want to be anywhere else but in church. Let's not forget as well the erosion of our society by the influx of people from non-Christian countries. I hope you hear tongue-in-cheek. We've heard much in the last few years about taking back our countries in the West, making them Christian and great again, so that we can worship as Christians and legislate Christian values. Oh, but maybe I'm confused. I thought it was people in Western societies that had stopped attending church when our programs were catchy and before the influx of immigrants. And it was our largely Christian-dominated legislatures that changed the laws, not the immigrants and other influences. But I digress. The people of Israel, they went through trying times. But they went through it to a degree of national and personal disaster that we in the West, we just can't imagine. Psalm 2 is a good way to enter into this problem. We're going to read it in a few moments. But first I want to set it up. When it was composed, Psalm 2 did not look off to a distant, divinely anointed Messiah. It was a psalm celebrating the God who backed the king who sat on the throne in Jerusalem. It speaks the language of rule by power and strength and highlights the characteristics needed for a ruler who would serve in a nation that lives in the midst of power and resource-hungry, dog-eat-dog nations around them. In the books of Samuel, we hear about how the people were done over with abusive clergy. Clergy like the sons of Eli who demanded that the food that was restricted only for God should be put on their plates. These priestly rulers convinced women that 
sexual favors were somehow okay because after all, they were priests and would they lead people astray? Samuel, the book of Samuel, begins with the sad scenario in which the best available candidate for the priesthood in Israel was a little boy, Samuel, who was not even of a priestly tribe. Jump ahead a lifetime. And it's now Samuel whose sons are the scoundrels and who expect to succeed their father. So the people say, enough with theocracy. If we must have power and corruption among our leaders in order to live in this world, give us a king. They knew what to expect with the king. And a king, however, could unite them, could lead them into battle, could protect them from those who came to oppress. No more priests, no more charismatic leaders who come years after we have suffered under the oppression of others. Give us a king. Samuel, we want a king. And then there's this interesting exchange. It goes something like this. Samuel comes to God and says, God, the people want a king. And to Samuel's surprise, God says, Samuel, give them a king. Now hold on, God. You don't want a king. Um, am I not good enough? Is theocratic rule not really what you want? And so in this long conversation, I imagine it sort of unfolds like this. God says to Samuel, Samuel, it's not about you. Remember back, think back, what was the promise that Jacob made to Judah? That he would be a lion's whelp. That he would be the scepter that rules in Judah. Rulership, kingship belongs to the tribe of Judah. Samuel, remember back in Deuteronomy chapter 17 where I lay out the laws for a king. Samuel, if they want a king, give them a king. That little boy Samuel, like Eli and so many religious leaders before him, had come accustomed to his own religious power, and he wanted to keep it and pass it on to his sons. And like Eli, he turned a blind eye to his son's immoral behavior. After all, boys will be boys. What can a parent do? They'll grow up and they'll be better. But in the end, God persists and Samuel relents. But not before giving them one blasting sermon on what a king was going to be like. But they knew that from the beginning. Let's jump ahead a few years. David asks for permission to build a temple, a house for God. 
And God says, no, you like war too much. But I'll tell you what, I'll build a house, a dynasty for you. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning at verse 14, and this is shortened. We read this about the successors of David, his sons. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will punish him. But I will not take away my covenant loyalty. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure in perpetuity before me. Your throne shall be established in perpetuity. And those who have taken my intro class and who have studied the word olam know what I've just done there. Now it's Psalm 2 that grows out of that very promise to David and that situation. The father-son relationship that exists between Davidic king and the God of Israel is at the center of this psalm. It pictures the ideal co-regency of father God and adopted Davidic son ruling in Israel together. Listen to the word of the Lord. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and his anointed, saying, let's burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. He who sits in heavens laughs. Yahweh has them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings of the earth, serve Yahweh with fear, with trembling, Kiss his feet, or he will be angry, and you will perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Happy are those who take refuge in him. But alas, as we read many times in the Old Testament, from the very beginning, as Samuel warned, power is abused. Humans become mere expendable instruments in the hands of kings. Kings accumulate wealth for themselves. They amass armies equipped with the latest weaponry that a friendly superpower would sell to them. The very things that in Deuteronomy 17, God says, a king in Israel shall not do this. And how little we learned over the centuries. When Constantine offered imperial influence to the leaders of the early church, they could not resist. The rule of Christ through the church's leaders would surely be better than anything that the Roman Empire could offer. It would surely be better than no influence and power at all. We could change things for the good. Alas, to our shame, the lessons of Eli, Samuel, and the line of David were lost 
on us, the church. Human leaders, even those who could be labeled as men after God's own heart, they remain human. The scriptures are clear on this. They're quickly seduced by power, influence, money. And we can, of course, rationalize away the politically expedient decisions that rulers must make. It is a tough world, after all. And sometimes, as a leader, you just have to make tough decisions. John Dalberg Alton, Acton, the first Baron Acton, dissects this sin of the church in a letter that he wrote as a Roman Catholic to an Anglican bishop in 1887. A couple of things are well known from this particular letter. Listen to some of what Lord Acton says to the bishop. I cannot accept your, and I've changed a bit of the language to update it. I cannot accept your religious rule that we are to judge Pope and King unlike other men with a favorable disposition that they did no wrong. If there is any presumption, it's the other way. Against the holders of powers, increasing as the power increases. And here it is. Power tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And then this. Great men are almost always bad men. Even when they exercise influence and not authority. He goes on. He talks about how the church turns a blind eye and justifies the sin of the rulers. This is also the judgment of the Old Testament on the notion that the kingdom of God can advance through political leaders, through kings. And so, as the Old Testament history comes to a dramatic close, beginning in the 590s BCE, God commissions, God brings in the Babylonians to take over Israel, to demolish the political and religious structures that are in the land. What about the promise of a king in perpetuity? Samuel Throughout the, the Psalms, they sing of it. Had God actually forgotten his covenant loyalty? Well, the scriptures retort, ah, but what about a king after God's own heart? A king who would read and follow the teachings of the Lord. A king who, although human and sinful, would nonetheless exercise more mercy and justice and act with more care for the laws of God than any possible ruler in any land anywhere in this world. Perpetuity did not mean forever. Deuteronomy makes that clear. It was a hard lesson. And beginning with the Babylonians, moving to the Persians, to Hellenistic rulers, to Rome. God hands control of his people over to foreign powers and leaves them only with temple and worship.
Over the centuries between then and when Jesus arrives, faithful followers of the Lord reread those psalms and those passages and they begin to make sense of them. God is promising, as we read in the prophets, a new system in the future, new rulers, a new kingdom. And they begin to look forward to the anointed one coming in the future, a Messiah. And so when Jesus, son of David, a self-declared son of God, displays kingly characteristics, his disciples begin to jostle and battle for who's going to sit on the right and who's going to sit on the left. They are sucked into the power struggle. Try as he might, Jesus could not get them to hear that the kingdom of God is not about power and control. But his closest followers remained addicted to the belief that power and political influence are the answer. And so, their hopes are dashed when Jesus, instead of marching in and becoming the glorious Davidic ruler, ends up slaughtered like a lamb by the leaders of the temple. And now we get to the passage that was read this morning. When the Roman Empire was persecuting in pockets throughout the empire, the people of God became disillusioned. They looked back. They wondered whether others, other possibilities would be better. But Jesus in this reminds us, reminded them, that the long-expected Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, had become the lion prophesied in Isaiah chapter 11. The calf and the lion and the fatling will lie down together and a little child will lead them. But more than that, the lion had morphed into something quite different. We heard as the reading was dramatically read for us how when John looks up to see the lion of the tribe of Judah, he sees a lamb that had been slain. Strong, powerful, mighty. The image is very clear and expounded on in other places. The power of the church, the power of the people of God is the power of the gospel. Listen to this from Revelation 12. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, but they have conquered him through politics, through legislation, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they did not cling to life, even in the face of death. We read about how the Romans viewed Christians in the early church. They write about how as they fled places of plague, they met these crazy Christians going in to the very plague-ridden areas 
to minister in the name of Jesus. They talk about how these crazy Christians go out and they rescue the exposed baby girls and deformed babies that Roman families did not want. And they raise them as their own. These crazy Christians died in pits of lions, impaled on poles, burned by fires, all the while singing and praying and remaining true to Christ. It was this that changed the Roman Empire. Whatever Constantine's reasons for what he did, he's not the fault. It was the church that when given the addictive drug of power, put it into a bag, put it in the arm, and lived on it intravenously. To our shame, that led to the reversal of what we, uh, what changed the Romans. Now, Christians, we legislate that non-Christians must live the moral life of Christians by enacting it in legislation, or they must suffer the consequences. We impose our ways on those who don't want them. Now Christians legislate that those who, must, those who are not followers of Jesus must nonetheless pretend to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. We have again fallen back and forgotten the lessons. One of our students who just finished his Doctor of Ministry degree is Lebanese, and he told us this story, this account of what happened. And it reminds me of where we need to have our priorities. In Lebanon, our Baptist brethren struggled with the very same kinds of issues that we struggle with here in the West. And then their Syrian overlords from years ago flooded into the country as refugees. Destitute, hungry, begging, and against their political inclinations, the love of Christ constrained these Christians to feed their former oppressors. And to the utter amazement of the Baptist churches, Muslims started coming to Christ, flocking to the churches. They didn't know what to do. They hadn't strategized how to do this. They just lived as Christ. And it happened. Maybe rather than worry about declining numbers and whether there will be churches in which to serve, and we should forget about the numbers, forget about sustainability, forget about whether we minister and will have enough money coming in from those who are uh, hearing the gospel. Maybe all of those things are our misplaced priorities. We've bought into the values of this world. If we can number it, it's successful. Or at least we can measure its success. We're called to not cling to life even in the face of death. And instead, preach the life-giving, life-changing message of the Lamb of God slain. And to demonstrate the transformative power of the gospel by being the body of Christ. And then, if the rest of society looks on and sees in our lives and lifestyles things of value, then maybe they can adopt such ways 
and we can continue to live the life of Jesus in a world addicted to power. Thanks be to God.